You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Baseball, more than any other sport, has a rich history of slang and terminology that continues even to this day. People new to the sport may be familiar with words like double play or shutout, but throw out phrases like golden sombrero or around the horn, and you're quickly going to see that glaze start to form over their eyes just from confusion and boredom. But baseball's jargon is what makes it unique. We as fans, we wear it as a badge of honor that our language is deep, long-standing, always evolving. Who needs Tolkien when you have linguists like Casey Stengel and Dennis Eckersley? Our dialect connects us to one another. When we hear a term that may cause others to scratch their heads, we know what's going on. So let's learn about some terms from the fans book and some not so familiar ones from yesteryear. Today on Rounders, a history of baseball in America. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to today's episode. I am your host, Jeff Lambert. And I know it's been a while since we've talked. It's been almost two months since the last time I posted an episode. I did one for opening day, and then life just happened. Uh, You know, for those of you that have been listening since the first episode, this has been an interesting journey for me. I started off by moving from Massachusetts down to Miami and uh, ended up not having a job when we did so. So in addition to staying home with my two-year-old son, I decided to start a podcast on a sport that I love dearly. And that was the birth of Rounders. And we celebrate our one-year anniversary actually next week. It feels like it's gone by so quickly, but here we are. And, you know, I've really enjoyed doing this podcast. And, you know, unfortunately, the bills have to be paid. And I ended up getting a great job that I love a lot a couple months ago, and that's really dominated my time, unfortunately. So I haven't been able to put out episodes with the same frequency that I used to, but I'm starting to hit that point. I think we all get in our job where you start to feel confident with what you're doing. The training process is over. You know, you kind of know what to expect from each day, and that's where I'm starting to get to. So I'm really hoping to be able to turn out more episodes and get back to the way we were doing things before. So I just want to say Thank you to all of you for sticking with me and continuing to tune in. I'm excited about today's episode, and before we get started, I just want to do a couple shout-outs. The first one is to Joel R. Uh, Joel's been a longtime listener of the show, and he actually came up with the idea for today's topic. He messaged me and let me know, hey, I think this would be a great idea. So the research process that I went through was just fascinating, and um, I'm thinking of making this maybe a multi-part episode series, too, because I learned so much, it was hard to cut it down into a into a shorter uh, time frame for today's episode. So, Joel, thank you so much for the idea. This is going to be hopefully the first of many to come on this topic. And 
I'd also like to say hey to Alex H. Uh, he connected with me on Instagram here actually this past week, and he told me that he's been having his girlfriend listen to the show to get her interested in baseball. So, Alex, I'm glad to hear that the show's been great for the both of you. And to Alex's girlfriend, hey, thanks for tuning in as well. It's it's always great to have a new listener. And to everybody, you know, it's been great connecting with you. Again, you can help me reach new people and, and gain a bigger following for baseball fans everywhere just by going on to social media and sharing some of the posts that I'm putting out or by going onto iTunes or your podcast app of choice and leaving a review. That helps so much. So if you could take a minute to do that, either before or after the episode, try not to do it while you're driving because, you know, I don't want anything to happen to you. Uh, you if you could do that, that would be great. I would appreciate it. So that is all for our intro. Let's get to our topic for today. Alright, ladies and gentlemen, so our format for the show today is simple. We're going to start with topics that are familiar to baseball fans today, and then we'll dive into their supposed origins. We'll do this kind of like a spelling bee from ESPN. I'll say the word, and then I'll use it in a sentence. Then I'll share with you a brief definition of the term, and then we'll discuss its origin. Sound good? Let's get started. So the first term I wanted to share with you was one that pretty much every baseball fan knows, but has some interesting origins to it, and that term is shutout. Used in a sentence, Pedro Martinez shut out the Yankees by a score of 5-0. to Sorry, I had to get my Red Sox fix in there. (laughs) Now, a shutout occurs when the losing team doesn't score. That's the definition. So now let's talk about the origin. So the earliest mention of the term shutout actually is something I found in the Dixon Dictionary, which is honestly the best collection of baseball terms I have ever come across. Again, that's the Dixon Dictionary. I highly recommend it to any baseball fan, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's available on Amazon. You can get it as a hardcover, softcover, paperback, softcover, or as a Kindle edition as well. Great reading. So, shutout actually occurred. Its origins come from horse racing. Now, in the horse racing world, a shutout referred to somebody who didn't make it to the window on time to make a bet. Therefore, they were shut out. Now, this term first showed up on July 2, 1879. It was in a newspaper article from the Troy Times. Now, there were other terms that were used in in addition to shutout during this time, and the other terms have kind of gone away and shutout has stuck, but even going back to the late 1800s, we saw two terms that were used almost interchangeably to shutout. So a lot of times, sports writers would refer to a shutout game as a skunk. Now, this, again, was widely used before shutout became popular, and it really had the same meaning, to prevent the other team from scoring. The other term that was really popular during this time that also was synonymous with the word shutout was whitewashed. Now, the reason or the meaning behind this term, it's hard to pin down exactly, but the term whitewash most likely had to do with either the erasing nature of a white coat of paint, kind of think about like Tom Sawyer, or that pure white on the scoreboard that was never covered with a score during the entire game. 
So shutout goes back all the way to the 1800s. And it's a term that we're very familiar with today, but it kind of grew out of these two other terms. So there were three, and this one became the most popular of all of them. So let's go on the term number two, and that term is knuckleball. Used in a sentence, that knuckleball pitch fooled the batter into swinging. The definition, a knuckleball is a slowly thrown ball where the pitcher grips it with either his fingertips, his fingernails, or his knuckles and pushes the ball forward. Now, the ball has no spin to it, so it tends to float, weave, or dip its way all the way to the catcher's mitt. To put that in context, legendary sports writer Jimmy Cannon once called the knuckleball a curveball that doesn't give a damn. Let's go to the origin of the knuckleball. So the term refers to exactly how the pitch is thrown. And we like to think of it as more of a modern term, but the term knuckleball actually first showed up in 1908 in the New York Evening Journal. There were some other terms that were popular during the time that were also used synonymously with knuckleball, and that included names like a bobbin weave, a wobbler, a ghost ball, or a tumbler. All interesting. Knuckleball seems to be the only one that really stuck up into this day, but I would certainly be in favor of bringing back the term ghost ball. Hey, Joe Buck, I know you listen on a regular basis, so feel free to take that advice and use it in your next broadcast. Let's go to our third option, our third term, the K, the letter K. Let me use it in a sentence. Roger Clemens threw 14 Ks against the Royals this afternoon. Now, the letter K in baseball refers to a strikeout, and there is a reason for that. You would think it would be an S, but let me talk to you about why it came to be this. So, there was a gentleman named Henry Chadwick, who's often called the father of baseball, and he was one of the game's first sports writers. He helped really popularize the sport in the late 1800s. He developed a scoring system in addition to a lot of other inventions, and I'm going to do an episode on this guy now that I came across him and read more about him. But he developed a scoring system to help record the action while watching. And this is something I learned to do at a very young age, and it's still popular at the ballparks. I see people pulling out the papers from their programs with a pencil. You've probably seen them, the little boxes where you can draw the symbols on them to be able to track what's going on for each batter and each out that's recorded. Well, Henry Chadwick is responsible for that. So when he first came out with the system, he designated the letter K as the symbol for a strikeout. Now, he explained in an interview at the time that the letter K stuck easier in people's memory to remember in connection rather than the, word, the letter S. But in reality, what really happened was that his one-letter symbol system he had already chosen S and designated it for another term, sacrifice fly. So he chose K as the symbol for strikeout. Now, that's something we're all pop, that's popular today, and we, we know what the K means. If you, if you frequent baseball games or you watch them on TV, you're, you're familiar with the term. But believe it or not, this was used a lot in the early 1800s and uh, late 1800s and early 1900s, but then it dropped in popularity. And it actually was reborn in the 1980s 
due to the New York Mets and their strikeout master, Dwight Gooden. See, he was given the nickname Dr. K, and fans started to popularize this tradition of hanging these K banners from the outfield cheap seats whenever he recorded a strikeout. Now, I myself, I have fond memories of going to Red Sox games when I was a kid and watching when Pedro Martinez pitched, fans doing the same thing and bringing out the K cards and putting them up, up uh, in, in the bleachers to be able to, for everybody to see. And, you know, I tried to do a little bit more research into this to see if there were other pitchers in the late 80s and early 90s after Gooden started this trend, if, if this also became popular. I couldn't find anything. So I'm, I'm assuming that Roger Clemens, who was also known as a strikeout master uh, during, during the early and late 90s, um, if he also got the same treatment. So if I have any older Red Sox fans that are listening to the show, or if you've seen this in your own ballparks in general, Please shoot me a message. I'm I'm curious to see if this was a trend that, you know, is is something that carried on right after Gooden made it popular, or if it kind of went through this period of not being seen before it came back again uh, in the 2000s. So that is where the term K comes from. Let's go to our last term that most baseball fans are familiar with, and that is the term bullpen. Let me use it in a sentence. The manager is signaling to the bullpen to send out his relief pitcher. Now, the definition of bullpen is the area where the pitching staff and the pitching coach usually sits during games. Now, the first documented usage of the term bullpen was in 1913 by sports writer Pete Morris of the Washington Post. Now, the term bullpen is one of those ones that historians love to argue because there really is no consensus on how this term came to be. And there's a lot of possible origin stories floating around. So for your convenience, I went through and I listed the top ones that I could find, and you can be the judge which one you think is the best or which one that you think is true. So let me go through each of these. The first theory behind how the term bullpen came about was actually from Casey Stengel. Now, Casey Stengel was an MLB outfielder and manager, and he's a Hall of Famer. Now, he played professional baseball from 1912 to 1925. I found an interview that he was quoted in, and he said, quote, You could look it up and get 80 different answers, but we used to have pitchers who, would, who could pitch 50 or 60 games a year, and the extra pitchers would just sit around shooting the bull, and no manager wanted all that gabbing on the bench. So he put them in this kind of pen to warm up. It looked like a place to keep cows or bulls, end quote. So we see the origin story that Stengel is putting out here. Basically, he didn't want these pitchers who tended to spend a little more time in the dugout distracting the players and just talk, talk, talk all the time. So he he, I guess, relegated them to a certain part of the ballpark that almost looked like a pen for cows or bulls. That's, that's one of the most popular theories for where this term came from. But there's another as popular theory for the term bullpen, and that was really popularized by Johnny Murphy. Now, Murphy was an all-star relief pitcher, and he played on and off from 1932 to 1947. Now, under his opinion... He also stated in an interview that, quote, 
It came from Bull Durham Tobacco. That's what I was always told. All the ballparks had advertising signs on the outfield fences, and Bull Durham was always near the spot where the relief pitchers warmed up. End quote. Now, the Bull Durham theory has the most visual evidence to back it up, and advertising for this company was everywhere in the early 1900s. They were a very popular brand of tobacco. The most compelling evidence that I came across was the fact that during this time, most of the games were day games. And so pitchers would naturally go to the shaded spots in the outfield away from the action, and they would go under these 40-foot signs, these 40-foot bull advertisements, bull Durham advertisements, and they would usually be these giant bulls. But it would create a, quite a big shadow in certain parts of the ballpark. So these relief pitchers would go there, and they would stretch, and they would warm up. That makes logistical sense to me. Now, so there's some visual evidence to back up that theory. But Stengel's theory also has some solid evidence as well. So he relies more on the linguistic history of the term, so let me just go through that real quick for you. Now, beginning during the Civil War, a roped-off area where enemy soldiers were herded like cattle into a certain area was called the bullpen. That was, that was a term that was very familiar during the Civil War years, referring to those individuals. And that term continued after the Civil War. As we migrated west and, and, and colonized and, and, and really brought civilization to certain areas, we saw that really any log enclosure that was used for prisoners or cattle was also called a bullpen. So the term kind of shifted. It transferred, um, used during the Civil War for prisoners of war, and then also used as a term to house livestock or these rudimentary places to keep prisoners. And on a complete side note, and this is the high school history teacher in me talking, if you've never looked up the history of the prison system in the United States, it is fascinating, morbidly fascinating. But even in the late 1800s, when the U.S. government started taking more of a role in trying to set up actual prisons to keep prisoners in, I mean, it was, it was crazy in terms of uh, how these prisoners were housed. We're talking about abandoned mine shafts, railroad cars, there were horrible sanitary conditions for them to live in. Uh, certainly our penal system has come a long way since then. But I would encourage you, if you're ever bored on a, on a Sunday or something, look up our prison system's history. It's interesting to see where it's come. Now, uh, as prisons and jails became more commonplace in towns and cities, the term just kind of stuck. Now, there was a letter sent to the Sporting News in 1939, and it confirms this use of the term bullpen to keep in, enclosed players or keep enclosed people in. This uh, unidentified writer said that, quote, the place in most jails where prisoners exercise is known as the bullpen. I just remembered when I was a young boy, I asked a policeman where he was going with two drunken men. And he said to the bullpen, I'm going to sober them up to be good men, end quote. So, this this debate's raged on. Like I said, you had an anonymous writer say, you know, he remembered hearing this term used a certain way to refer to, to fencing in certain people. Now, so we have two terms out there. We have the Bull Durham theory, like we said, where it, it, it comes from the place where the relief pitchers would go under that specific sign, under that specific area. And then we have Stengel's theory, where it was a place where the relief pitchers 
uh, the specialty pitchers would be cordoned off away from the rest of the players. So we have those two terms. And there's a third one that also has gained more popularity in recent years. And it was first introduced by baseball historian Dan Schlossberg. So he first floated this theory in his book called The Baseball Catalog. And he stated that an interviewee had shared with him that the term was actually coined by a player for the Milwaukee Brewers, and his name was Bill Friel, and it was coined all the way back in 1901. So this even precedes the first two theories. Now, Friel was a railroad employee, and he did that full-time before he became a pro baseball player. So Schlossberg stated that in this interview, it was stated that, quote, there were shanties with benches at intervals along the roadbed, and workers would sit there and talk during work breaks. When Friel played, pitchers who weren't working sat on similar benches in the right field foul territory. He referred to it as the bullpen because the railroad bench had the same name. So he's saying that Friel actually started the trend of calling it this because that's what he was used to while working on the railroad. So those are your three terms that really there's no consensus of which one it is, and they each have certain amounts of evidence to back them up. But there's no right answer here, and honestly, I'm torn on it myself. I, I'm not sure which one is correct, but it's a fun conversation to have. So those are four terms that we've talked about that are more popular today, ones that we recognize, and talked about their origins of where they came from. Let's take a quick break. And we'll come back and we'll discuss some popular terms that we don't hear too much nowadays, but were popular back then. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are enjoying the episode, please take a moment to follow us on social media. We're on Facebook. Instagram, and Twitter at Rounders Podcast. That's one word, Rounders Podcast. Every day, mostly, we have photos, quotes, trivia, and other interesting stories from baseball's rich past. And if you'd like to support the show financially, you can do that through a service called Anchor. They have secure payment options through Stripe, a trusted name in online payments. So you can send me a donation safely and easily simply by going to anchor.fm forward slash rounders. For my current donors, as always, thank you so much for your patronage. It means the world to me. Again, just go to anchor.fm forward slash rounders to donate. I will put a link in the show notes for you. That's all for now. Let's get back to the show. And welcome back, everybody. That was a quick mid-roll ad. I've cut some things out. You know, it's it's uh, something I just want to keep shorter. I'm not currently fundraising for anything right now. You guys have been awesome. You've helped me be able to afford a year's worth of Adobe uh, Spark so I could do my graphics a little bit better. And you've also helped me be able to afford a more uh, mobile microphone so I can do this on the road now, which is also going to be great. I'm actually recording from it right now. So thank you for all of you that have donated and supported me financially and, you know, just helping me be able to pay a few more bills so I can spend a couple more hours working on this. It just means a lot. So that's uh, pretty much that. And let's get into part two of our episode. So We've covered some terms that are still widely used today by baseball fans. 
now let's dive into the past and learn about some terms that you'd hear if you were sitting in a ballpark in the 1880s or the 1920s. So the first term I want to talk to you about that was popular during these time periods, and God forgive me for doing this one, but it was, it was one of those ones I just couldn't leave out. The term is shoot the cripple. Let me use it in a sentence. The pitcher's behind in the count. The batter will easily be able to shoot the cripple. Now, the definition for this term, it refers to when a pitcher falls behind in the count with three balls and no strikes. Now, when you're in that situation, you need to throw one into the strike zone to stay alive. So the belief was, and still is, that the next pitch will be easy to hit, as easy as shooting a cripple. Another term that was used synonymously with shoot the cripple, and it meant the same thing, was uh, throwing a cripple pitch. Now, there is some reasoning behind the terminology used here. So during the late 1800s and early 1900s, the term shoot was just a popular way to describe the act of pitching or throwing. So if a baseball fan said shoot the ball or he shot the ball, something along those lines, that would have been normal baseball jargon. It's certainly not a popular term that we use today which is what we're doing here. We're talking about some things that you would hear back then that you wouldn't hear today. Now, it it does sound uh, particularly cruel attaching that to a derogatory term for a disabled person, and that's pretty much the reason why I don't think this one's going to be making any comebacks anytime soon. So shoot the cripple. (laughs) That was the uh, reasoning behind that term. Let's go to another one. Can of corn. Can of corn. Let me use that in a sentence. The outfielder settled under the fly ball for an easy can of corn. Now, that's exactly what it sounds like. The definition for a can of corn is an easy fly ball for the outfielder to catch. Now, this is another one that we know it originated in the late 1800s, and it was a common term that you would hear at the ballpark during this time, but the actual uh, origin of the term that's that's up for debate. So I'm going to, again, I'm going to share with you some of the um, origin stories, the theories behind this. So one theory was that this was a, a common scene that anybody would come across if they went into a local grocery store at the time. See, most shopkeepers, they wore an apron to protect their clothes while they were working during this time. Now remember, keep in mind, this is before Food Lion and Market Basket and all these large grocery stores that we know today. These are these small corner shops, you know, where you'd go in and you'd get what you need and you knew the guy working behind the counter for the most part. So um, in these smaller stores, these shopkeepers would wear these aprons and canned items, if they were stacked on the top shelf, like canned corn, the shopkeeper usually had a stick with a hook on the end and they would go over, they would hook the can and it would fall off the shelf and they would catch it in their apron. So can of corn, just like falling off of the cow, uh, off of the uh, shelf and into an apron, nice and easy. The same would be the can of corn, that fly ball going easily into an outfielder's glove. That's theory number one. Theory number two was actually popularized by Pittsburgh Pirates announcer Bob Prince. Now he's quoted as saying that the term just comes from the easy usage of, quote, it's as easy as taking corn out of a can, end quote. 
I don't know about that one, but I guess, again, it's referring to the ease of just opening a can and dumping out corn for any meal that you're about to eat. So there's theory number two. Theory number three suggests that the term came from a popular snack that was eaten by kids during this time known as corn balls. Yes, that's not just a term for someone who makes bad jokes at a party. Corn balls were a mix of popcorn and molasses, kind of all rolled together into these actual balls that you could eat. So the, the thinking goes, popcorn, pop up, uh, it's a it's a stretch to me, this one, but I wanted to put it out there because you can be your own judge. So those are the three theories behind can of corn, that turn. Now, this is still used sometimes by announcers during games today, but it's rare compared to what it used to be used, or the amount that it was used, certainly, uh, almost 100 years ago. And it's not a well-known term to casual baseball fans. The word seemed to have reached its peak in the 1920s. That's really when it became, uh, you know, out of everyday baseball lingo. And with that, let's go to our final term that we're going to be talking about in this episode. That term is tools of ignorance. Tools of ignorance. Let me use that in a sentence. The catcher steps behind the plate wearing his tools of ignorance. The definition of this term, it refers to catcher's gear. Everything including the mask, the glove, the chest protector, and the shin guards. Now, this term, it's agreed upon by baseball historians that it was coined by Harold Ruddy Rule, who was a catcher for the Washington Senators during the 1920s. And that's when this term really became popular in sports writing. Now, catcher's gear was very basic during this time. and this was also during the time where pitchers began to increase their pitch speed and their velocity thanks to field dimension and ball changes. If you want to learn more about the ball changes, check out my last episode, episode 18, Origin of the Baseball, or Evolution of the Baseball, I should say, excuse me, for more information on that. So when a catcher stepped behind the plate, increasingly so, they were really placing themselves in harm's way more and more. And that's what this term was all about. It was meant to point out the irony that a player with the intelligence needed to be effective behind the plate would be so foolish enough to play a position that required so much safety equipment. Now, in a way, Rule kind of, I think he really understood what he was getting himself into because he was actually the catcher during a game in 1920 when a batter named Ray Chapman stepped to the plate and was hit by a pitch. And he later died from his injuries from where that pitch hit him. So, you know, the the catcher's gear just wasn't up to snuff to be able to protect those catchers, and he firsthand witnessed uh, the devastating effects of a wrongly placed pitch could do to another individual. So those are three terms that we don't hear much in the ballpark nowadays, but were certainly popular 100 years ago and even further back. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is going to be where we stop for this episode. We've hit our max in terms of time, but like I said, this was a fun topic. And I think I'm going to plan a part two in the future, maybe even a part three, depending on the feedback I get. So if you want to hear about more lingo from baseball's past, let me know. And for the month of July, I am planning to go four for four with weekly episodes. 
I know it's a lofty goal, but I really want to get more episodes out there for you to enjoy, and I want to get back to posting on a regular solid schedule. So as I attempt this endeavor, please send me some encouragement throughout the month. I always love hearing from you, and you know I'm available on social media, by email. You can certainly reach out to me through any of those uh, options. And Anchor actually has a really cool feature. If you download the app where you can leave a voice message if you want to, and I can feature it actually in the episode. But maybe that's maybe that's too forward thinking for this point. But again, that's my goal. Four for four. That's what we're shooting for. So as we wrap up, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening. And remember, there are only two seasons, winter and baseball. Thank you.